Hey people, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that if we all work together, there is time to create a future that we would be proud to leave to the generations that come after us. I'm Manda Scott, your guide and fellow traveller on this journey into possibility. And as you may know, a long, long way back in my own timeline, I was a vet, which in the UK is short for veterinary surgeon, and in the US is translated as veterinarian, because vet means something different. So I was the animal doctor kind. I made the transition to being a full-time writer at the turn of the millennium, and now, obviously, podcasting is also a part of the mix, and I'm a regenerative smallholder, a fact for which I am daily extraordinarily grateful. And the combination of these, the smallholding, the podcast, writing through utopian novels, I have just handed in the edited proofs of any human power. I am an extremely happy bunny. Anyway, the combination of these has led me deeper and deeper into what does regenerative farming actually mean. And in this particular instance, I'm talking about the kind where we don't plough and we don't spray and we don't fertilise. In fact, we have no inputs to the land other than what we can create by encouraging really good biodiversity on the land with domestic animals and with also a huge range of other species. We're trying always to find ways to live harmoniously with the rest of the web of life. And so knowing that, thinking that, exploring that, it was with great joy and not a little envy that I learned of the work of Claire Whittle, the regenerative vet. As you'll hear, Claire went into veterinary medicine intending to work with small animals, which is to say dogs and cats and other household pets. But working on a dairy farm as part of the requirements for her degree led her to fall in love with cattle. And when she qualified, she became a farm vet. And then, in the conversation you're about to hear, she talks movingly and with deep authenticity about her journey from traditional large animal practitioner to a place where she's a passionate advocate for the human capacity to engage with the natural world, for our ability to become a positive keystone species, and for farming to become a lower-stressed, lower-input, far more holistic experience than it often is in the 21st century. And she's a completely compelling source of fascinating information, particularly about dung beetles. We have never had a podcast where we discussed dung in quite so much detail or depth. And it's all good. Actually, it's all completely inspiring. I want to go out and start counting dung beetles now. But we're in the middle of a storm, and it's February, and that might not be the time, but I will be counting them by the spring. And for you, wherever you are in the world, whether you're farming acres of land or have a single pot or a trough on a balcony, learning to step into our birthright of deep-rooted connection to the land, to the actual soil, is one step on our journey towards being what the world needs of us, towards being a positive keystone species. So Claire's here to encourage and inspire and enlighten us. This was such a fun, sparkling conversation with so much to learn. So people of the podcast, 
please do welcome Claire Whittle, the regenerative vet. Claire, fellow vet, welcome to the Accidental Gods podcast. How are you and where are you this rather lovely February morning? (laughs) Hi, Amanda. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. I'm currently sat in my office, which only actually came about a couple of weeks ago. So I have a real life office, um, Yay. <laughs> um, which is in, uh, so I'm actually in Glyn Kiriog, which is not too far from Slangothlin in North Wales, um, in my house. Yeah. So I um, set up my business a year ago and finally have an office to sit and work in, which is nice. <laughs> so I don't have to be at the table, Brilliant. kitchen table. <laughs> actually, you're not too far from here. I thought somehow you were up near Liverpool, but Actually, you're just basically due west. Lovely. Thank you. <laughs> so you're a vet. Yeah. Which, of course, is where I started and, and since veered off. But you have gone down a very different route from your, certainly the average vet when I qualified. Tell us a little bit about how you got to be where you are now, because it's a whole career path that I would never have imagined until I met you. And then I thought, God, yes, I wish I'd done that. <laughs> so so tell us how you came to be who you are. <laughs> uh, right. So, yeah, so I'm a farm vet. So I only, so basically, um, I speci- well, where I work, so I work three days a week as what I would call a conventional farm vet. Um, I'm not from a farming background. So I did grow up in Liverpool, which is where the Liverpool thing has come from and the slight twang I think you can probably get. So, uh, yeah, so not from a farming background. And I went to university with the intention of doing small animal work because I'd never even been near a cow. Um, So I went in my first year, as we all did, to do various different types of work experience. So for those who are non-vets listening in, um, you have to do work experience in almost every area. So you qualify as a vet that can do small animal, large animal and equine work. And pigs and poultry and everything. Yeah, everything. So um, so you have to go and do those. So I went to work at a stables and I went to work um, in a dog kennels and various other things, which we do, do, did a bit of lambing. And then I went to work on a dairy farm in my first year and um, Dad's always been terrified of cows, so I had that sort of inbuilt terror of cows, <laughs> and um, I was very surprised <laughs> when I went there. How and I just completely and utterly fell in love with them, um, and uh, that was that. Really, I had a really lovely uh, there was a really lovely farm manager there called John, and interestingly, after this podcast, I'm going to go and see him because he retires this year next month, and he said it's been 20 years it's gone so fast and I said I can't believe that and he said well I actually met you 15 years ago Claire so (laughs) which is a bit scary when I think about it and he was just so good he had so much time and patience for me and for my non-farmingness without him I wouldn't be doing farm vetting basically it was uh, he was absolutely brilliant I mean he taught me the difference between hay and straw um (laughs) very very basic things and just I mean I broke so many things on that farm I broke everything that could possibly break and he just was like well if you don't do it you'll never learn (laughs) so he was amazing what amazing guy I went back every year to that farm to do work experience I did night milking there um at the weekends so I night milked three weekends a month and then the last month I would DJ to pay my way through university so I went as a mature student I didn't go to uni till I was 24 so I didn't graduate till I was 29 and um, then when I left that's all I wanted to do was cows so I, uh, I moved to Dorset I spent two years down in Dorset which was just a beautiful part of the world and then I came back home for various reasons and the closest I can be to Liverpool where there's cows is well either North Wales Shropshire sort of way Cheshire so so I worked mainly in dairy practice three days as I say three days a week 
Um, and a few years into my learning, as you'll know, Amanda, the first few years of vetting are basically just getting to know what you're actually doing. <laughs> um, yes, yes, making more mistakes and breaking things. <laughs> So, um, so yeah, so I, I, so I did that for a few years and was learning and, and I loved it. And obviously not knowing any different about farming, everything was new to me. And then I think a few years in, I started to be a bit more concerned about some of the environmental impacts surrounding farming. Um, and they became a bit more precedent in the media and things and things were coming out. And I thought, how can this wonderful thing that I'm completely in love with have any possible bad side to it? So yeah, so that was like a bit of a, an inkling that I'd always kind of seen farming and nature as two separate things, I guess would be the way to the way I put it. And I wanted to understand why and how that happened. And uh, basically, a, a lovely client of mine recommended the book Wilding um, by Isabella Tree uh-huh. about, uh, about the Nepa state in Sussex that's sort of in a way rewilded the land there's some cattle there and all of the nature that had come back as a result of it and in that book I read that not only did we have dung beetles in the UK but that the drugs that I prescribed as a vet had these hugely detrimental impacts on dung beetles and I didn't know either of those things and I started to wonder why nobody had ever told me that so I hadn't learned it at university you uh, you wouldn't have done either you wouldn't you know we, we didn't learn about the unintended consequences of some of these products that we prescribe on a daily basis and um, I wanted to look for more information and it wasn't really there so um, in the end I was contacted by a lovely farmer um, James Allen who um, farms down near the Cotswolds and he said he would was hoping to try and put something together for farmers so myself, um, James, another farmer, Bruce Thompson from Ireland, uh, a dairy farmer who says he now farms dung beetles, not cows, and um, two entomologists. Um, so Sally Ann Spence and Max Anderson, who was a, a student at the time, we basically set up an, an online resource um, called Dung Beetles for Farmers, which hopefully does exactly what it says on the tin and tries to improve the conservation status of, of dung beetles throughout the UK. And that, for me was the start of something. I mean, yeah, to think that this tiny little beetle that spends its entire life in poo would change the direction of my entire career is pretty phenomenal, really. But that's kind of what's happened. And it was a bit of an inroad into, well, okay, so these, these, there's these dung beetles that also do this job in far, on farms. And then there's all of these other creatures that also have these little jobs. And then they rely on the livestock. And then the livestock rely on them. And my job, I think, as a as a farm vet up to that point had been very much livestock centric. So it had been looking at the animals in front of me and what I'm t- doing, treating them or looking at them from a sort of herd health perspective. And then I think my the change then came around in terms of thinking, OK, what are the other impacts that my job could possibly have? And um yeah, I, I ended up, I did a conservation, uh, a postgraduate certificate in conservation medicine, just because this really appealed to me. And it was great, but it was very broad. I mean, we looked at everything from like canned lion hunting to fennoscandian populations of Arctic foxes. And for me, it was great, but it wasn't farming. And farming was what I was interested in, which is when I, so then I applied for a Nuffield scholarship to look at whether regenerative agriculture could improve the health and welfare of livestock. Got very interested in regen, as we all do, and went down the rabbit hole, took the red pill, if you like. Oh, the green pill. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then, yeah, it's just kind of... um, been a whirlwind from there it's escalated from that point I ended up doing um, I did holistic management training and that was a bit of a pivotal moment I did a lot of crying um finding out both about myself and what I thought about the world and also about this holistic view or so looking things in holes 
Tell us more about holistic management training. I want to unpick some of the previous stuff, but just while we're here, what is it, who does it, and and why did it, if you can, what was it that triggered in you the emotional stuff? Because you've already described a really big emotional journey, and yet this is taking you deeper. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so holistic management. Um, I th- well, lots of people do it for different reasons, and I kind of thought it was training just for farmers. Um, so I did, uh, it's based on work by um, Alan Savory, and I did my training course with um, Sheila um, Cook from 3LM. Um, and I did some of it at Farm Ed. And I did, in fact, James Allen, who I mentioned previously, the farmer, James and Katie were doing it for their farm. Um, so they were having it done at their farm. And I basically joined the party. <laughs> uh, so I went there and actually there was four of us. So there was myself, um, Katie and James and um, George, um, who was working for them at the time. And all four of us did it together, um, which was actually, it was actually really nice because it was a small group. Yes. First, it's basically split up into four parts. So the first part was sort of, designing your context so um, by your context it's like what you want your life to look like what you want yeah your whole life so it's not it's not just about a farm it's about your yeah you're designing your own your own I guess what's the word is it it's like a mission statement maybe in a way (laughs) right yes yes in the ways that we don't because we tend to default into how we want our life to be and then you sit down and you actually think about it and plan it which is not a usual behavior for most of us in this world no and it and it's um it's all it's very ecocentric if you like so it's very much about putting sort of nature at the heart of it um which was and you don't re- that's all, all I think we really are destined to want to do we don't maybe don't realize it <laughs> but we kind of it's all within us that sort of those found those sort of foundations aren't they and that was um the bit of a tipping point for me I think because I realized that what I was doing in my day-to-day wasn't really aligned necessarily with who I wanted to be and what I wanted to put into the world. So I think that's where the tears came from, was that realisation right. that there was this whole other world that I wasn't necessarily focusing on. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I, I came up with my context. I can't, I can't remember the entirety of it, but um, it's basically that I advocate for um, healthy livestock as part of healthy ecosystems that benefit people and planet. And that was my, that was a bit of a moment for me, really. I think the most important thing to say about that one is you can do you can just do that part of the course if you want to. Right. So that was the first part, and it's and it's applicable to everyone, whether you are a farmer, whether you are um, a hairdresser, whether you are a vet, whether you whatever you want to do to come up with that idea and to really sit down and delve into it was, yeah, it was pretty profound, really. And then the second bits follow up into grazing planning, um, financial planning, and then the fourth part again, which I really enjoy. I mean, the, it's hard. It was slightly harder for me with the grazing and financial planning because I don't have a farm. But hopefully some of what I've learned there I can apply to this current business, which I'm in, which I which I do in my my other two days a week. Um, so, yeah, so that so the holistic management, so the grazing planning financials and then the fourth part is like ecological outcomes. And that was fascinating as well. You know, it was very much like it, it was kind of like the stuff you do in school, like mini beast hunting and like doing like putting out quadrats and measuring what's in those quadrats. And I just yeah, I really, really enjoyed that. And that's something that hopefully I can help other farms set up as well um, in, in the future, maybe even my own one day. We'll talk about that later. But for me, it wasn't just about putting myself or the livestock at the centre of the picture. And it seems also to be inherent within this, the concept that humanity can be a good keystone species, which is something that Chris Mage talks about quite a lot, that we have as our default belief that humanity is destructive. If we think at all, I think, 
that's the assumption that we take in. And yet, if I've understood what you're saying correctly and, and extrapolating it to Chris Mage and other people, the idea that there is still room for people to be of benefit to the whole of the web of life if we just take the agency that we're given and work out how to do it. And it doesn't mean that we're going to all end up living in straw bale huts on the West End of Wales off grid. You can be of benefit within a system that is endeavouring to be of benefit. And then you can step in as a vet. You have huge agency because you, you must be talking to farmers all the time. How do your two types of work, your standard vet practice and your two days a week of being a regenerative vet, do they overlap? Are you able to have regenerative conversations with your ordinary clients or the people who go, you know, I know you do this weird stuff, but I just don't want to hear about it. Just tell me how to maximise yield from my dairy cows. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And it's what I think. So at the point where I was when we did the holistic management, that was my job. I was doing that five days a week. So that was all I did. Um, so I was like, what well, I need to be able to try and take steps to make this something I don't do all the time. Um, so the first yeah, I think I set up, basically, I ended up setting up the regenerative vet last year. Um, thought, we'll give it a go. doesn't matter if it, you know, it doesn't matter if it's small because I'll still get my income from the three days a week. And I think that's really important as well. One of the things, um, maybe we can discuss it a bit further, but jumping into something straight and cold turkey doesn't necessarily always make sense from my financial perspective. And it certainly wouldn't have made sense for me. Whereas the benefit now is I can just earn a little bit on doing the regenerative vet side. I still know I have my bread and butter uh, safe. <laughs> I'm not much of a risk taker sometimes. Yeah. And um, yeah, and build that slowly. And um, I think biomimicry comes into that as well. But yeah, in answer to your question, it's hard sometimes to, the, the two things are can be both very separate, but also very together. So they're all farming, whichever way you look at it. Um, and I do have some interesting conversations with some of my, like, very, you know, my dairy clients. Right. And I think people feel, I hope that people feel they can talk to me about it. Um, and even things about, you know, the SFI and things and knowing what things people can apply for from a, from a nature perspective. I love that. But yeah, I feel sometimes like I do have my feet in two very different camps, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. So, you know, there's, I work with a team of 14 vets at the practice I work at, which is, you know, there's a lot of us that for me is a nice thing, you know, to have that team around me. Whereas I feel sometimes I can be a bit on my own on the other stuff. And yeah, there's a, there's definitely an increasing overlap between the two sides. I hate to use the word sides because that's what sometimes it does feel a yeah, little bit like no. that, doesn't it? That you have one side and the other. Um, but yeah, it's, I, 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 both types of farms need help, I would say to, you know, whether you're an intensive dairy, there's definitely things I can still do there to try and help improve that business, regardless of whether I, I feel that they're doing the right thing. And there's so many reasons why people do things the way they do, whether it's, you know, we often th oftentimes we'll talk about debt. You know, some of these farms are up to their eyeballs in debt. And what do you do about that when you've just put in a brand new rotary parlour and put up huge sheds? They need to be used. The bank isn't going to say, oh, well, it's all right, actually, your cows can just produce, you know, 15 litres a day and you'll be all right. It's not the whole system needs to change. It's not the farms. I think sometimes the blame gets put there and that's not where it should be. Yes. And I remember looking at figures from the US where the average farmer, they rounded them around, but let's say they had an income of $100,000 a year, but they owed 85000 of those dollars 
to so it just flowed straight through. They were just basically creating income for the death cult of predatory capitalism, and and they were working for less than the minimum wage. And until they can get their heads around that and service the debt some other way, then then the whole system is going to continue. And somebody associated with holistic management said, I get the phrase right, profit is sanity and throughput is vanity or the, was it the other way around that it's not it's not the total amount you make that matters it's actually how much you get to keep yes and and if all of your money is just going off servicing your debt and paying for the machines and paying for the stuff that you're pouring on the land then then basically you're still going to be feeling very constrained within a system that values people by how much money they make if you're aware of the dung beetles. I want to talk about dung beetles a bit more. <laughs> I'm wondering, how do, you, how do you manage, if you know now that some of the pharmaceuticals that we throw around are intensely damaging to natural systems, and yet you have someone who's got an 80-cow parlour that has to keep rotating all the time, and those cows are going to be super stressed, and you're going to need to give them, well, that's a, we, could, we could unpick the verb need, they are going to expect you to give them pharmaceuticals that you know are damaging. How do you square that? Or do you just end up feeling difficult inside and having to do something to, to let that go? Yeah, it's an interesting one. So I think one of the first things I would say is that most adult cattle don't need worming. So um, as long as they've had two grazing seasons on the farm, uh, eight month grazing seasons, and they've grown, they were born on that farm, they should build up some resilience to gut worm. Um, fluke, is at, fluke is a different story. Um, so um, fluke in cattle is definitely a different story. But from a worming perspective, for me, there's stages. So there's just, like I said to you earlier, sometimes going cold turkey isn't the best thing, but the best thing for the welfare of those animals either. Yeah. But if farmers are doing some diagnostics at the moment, for me, that's actually a massive step because some people aren't even at that point. They just, you know, it's easy to grab a bottle, isn't it? And it's actually relatively cheap to grab a bottle and use it without in, without doing those diagnostics. Right. So if you can decide actually whether or not your animals need worming in the first place, then that to me is a great first step. Okay, big win. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And then it'll escalate from there. So that's the, that's my general starting point. And I would say that to most farms. As an interesting one, Ireland have gone prescription only on their worming products. So for people listening that don't know, worming products can be prescribed by a vet or by a specially or suitably qualified person. I think that's the, the word, an SQP. So and that doesn't have that means that that vet might not have any conversation with that farmer about worming products whatsoever. So actually, if we can just get farmers to engage with their vets about worming products and what they can and when they should be using them, again, that's just that's a great first step for me. Right. So actually, what's going on on your farm? What's going on on your animals? Do these animals actually need worming or can we get to, you know, can we just at least get to a point where we understand that to start with? And then whether or not you need to use products, because also these products are, you know, they do cost money and it costs somebody's time to apply them. So we should be finding out whether or not we need them. So uh, Bruce Thompson, who I mentioned earlier, he always says to use as little as possible, but as much as is necessary. Um, and I think one of the things people don't talk about enough is is worming, wormer resistance, so antelmintic resistance in livestock. You know, I think sheep farmers are very good at it. They've been battling with it for years, but... 
you know, the, the, basically worm, resi- worming, worm resistance is the lack of sensitivity um, to a product that was previously sensitive. So it's the worms themselves that become resistant, not the animals. I think that's always an important one. Yes. And once the resistance is in those worms, they're here, that, that's there to stay. You know, it's not going to go away. And we don't have any new products coming to market. So if we, even if you don't give a poop about a dung beetle, everybody should be more concerned that these products are not going to work if we use them badly or we just continually use them on the same cycle so protecting them as much as anything is is important definitely is there any conversation happening around the impact on the gut biome because i know in the horses again resistance to wormers is is huge because everyone has just been give this this and this give it every three months do it regardless and now we're taking worm egg counts and wondering do we actually need this but i'm also my pony got laminitis last year. My my self-education on the horse gut biome was was basically a vertical curve and realising that a lot of the anthelmintics that we use also annihilate certain species within the gut biome and that this is not a good thing when you're wanting your horse to have a healthy gut biome because that's what keeps their feet intact. Is that a thing within the cattle and farming industry or is that just too esoteric at the moment? No, I think it's coming. I mean, it's interesting and talking about antimintics, but also antibiotics. You know, cattle basically to feed cattle, you're kind of feeding their bacteria yeah. in their gut. So you're yeah. So every time we use an antibiotic in them, we will have an effect, won't we? And it doesn't. The problem I think we forget with these products is it doesn't just take out the bad stuff they take out the good stuff we know that in humans as well so trying to use again antibiotics as little as possible um, and you know it, there's so many knock-on impacts of that as well one of the best ways a farmer can reduce their carbon footprint is to reduce their antibiotic use having healthy animals it just means more production so if you if you're production focused actually just keeping those animals healthy and not using those products i think so, is important and i there's a question I, I often think about when it comes to wormers where so these products, we didn't have them. We didn't have them before. I mean, it was really the 1960s when they became more prevalent. So what happened before? <laughs> you know, we you know we probably did have less. We you know potentially had less um, less lives, or well, we certainly probably have the similar amount of livestock on smaller farms potentially, more spread out. Probably had shepherds and things. So you know, a shepherd would go up into the hills with those sheep and be with them 24 seven. That doesn't happen now. So they could have got checked more regularly, but also potentially they would have died so and I'm not suggesting that we leave animals to die but what I am suggesting is maybe if we're having to treat those animals in our flocks and our herds whether or not they should stay you know what resilience have we lost in our herds and flocks by these products becoming available and also the fact that it's humans that have created resistant worms that's I mean we've done that these worms wouldn't have existed if we hadn't used those products so heavily and so yeah so in the first place basically so all of those things I think play a role but yeah in terms of gut biome I think there's really interesting stuff to come there I think we're probably early on in that in that research from a ruminant perspective I wouldn't I wouldn't um pertain to know much about it really. Exciting though there's so much to be done there and it feels like one of those doors that has just newly opened it's a bit like epigenetics it Mm. wasn't a thing 10 years ago and now we're all going oh look this these things happen in real time the genetic structure of an animal can change in its lifetime and and we didn't know that before it's it's a fascinating area and I'm wondering also we're talking about the animal biome and dung beetles have their own biome and then the soil has its own biome and If I've understood regenerative farming at all, it's that if we can restore the soil biome to what it was when we had a really good, diverse land, 
then we also enhance the health of everything that lives on it. And we increase the biodiversity of all of the animal species around it. So presumably what Bruce Thompson in Ireland is saying when he's farming for dung beetles is similar to a local organic farmer to here who says he's basically a worm farmer, is we're farming for healthy soil. And healthy soil can sequester carbon. So I know there was an article in the Financial Times last week saying that we're all overstating the carbon sequestration, but that's because greenwashing is happening and people are going, okay, we're going to plant trees and then we're going to sequester carbon and then we can carry on with business as usual and everything is fine, which is clearly insane. But that doesn't stop us from understanding that if we create healthy soil and if we can replace some of the topsoil that we have been busy destroying for the last 50 or 60 years, then everything is healthier. First of all, is that true? Second, to what extent are you finding within your regenerative practice that people are able to increase soil biodiversity and what results are they seeing? Yeah, so I would agree with all of what you said. Like, I feel like healthy soils lead to a healthy everything um I still remember um when I was uh so part of my Northfield travels I went up to the Lake District which I wouldn't have done if we weren't during if it wasn't during Covid and I went to a farm in the Lake District and I remember having a bit of a light bulb moment when I walked into the bedroom I was staying in and there was uh, a Maggie Learmonth um poster and it said um the answer lies in the soil and I was like wow <laughs> that is amazing yes. <laughs> so um yeah so I do and I believe and I mean so dung beetles just to give as an example of what you've just said dung beetles are nature's own dung removal service <laughs> so they should in theory all of that dung that sits on top of the pasture we want that under the ground we want those nutrients mixed into the soil and dung beetles do that for free so there's not only the livestock that are in front of us so the cows and the sheep for example there's all of the other livestock on the farm and some of that's underground livestock whether that's your worms whether it's your dung beetles some of it's above ground you know birds things like that birds swallows eat a thousand flies a day if you've got them around your cattle if you can encourage them onto your farm all the better so there's all of this other livestock that's working for us and we're not even yeah they're not even considered in most farming systems as being part of that system and in terms of farms I work with, that's what they're trying to achieve. They want to, you know, they want to farm. I would just farm alongside nature as much as possible and bring those things in. So, you know, yeah, the dung beetle thing, it, it blows my mind because they do that for free. And yet we use these products that then kill them. <laughs> it's just, it doesn't make sense. I can't ever really get my head around how that ever happened. And I know, you know, knowledge was different then and what people actually considered. But it's just going back to that. It was very anthropocentric wasn't it our views and I think that's the main thing that has to change and I think that's what's happening with the farms that I work with you know there's ways of monitoring it um so even on the dung beetles for farmers uh, webpage you can download a it's a citizen science survey basically but how to do basic surveys on your farm so you can look at um what you've got now you can compare it to the year on year see what's happening people using things like soil mentor I mean I just love the fact that people are comparing how many birds they've got versus how many liters of milk their cow can produce that to me is like that's such yay <laughs> why aren't we doing that more yes and yeah I think that's all people are trying to achieve and the most what I find the most fascinating is just what people observe what people are actually looking at on their farm and it might not be you know they the same things might have happened every single year but they're really just like Oh, I saw some, we had, we had an orchid, you know, that's such an amazing thing to actually see and to be able to name it and to feel like that's part of you and your farm. And that sort of link between yourself and the land, I think is, 
is that is basically what's the change for a lot of the farmers that I work with now in my uh, in, in the consultancy role. And so they're beginning to get excited by by the orchid or by the the number of dung beetles or the different presumably different species of dung beetles. Yeah. And to watch them returning, I think we've been on this land now for six years and. Two winters ago, on Christmas Day, I turned over one of the pony poos and there was a dung beetle in it. A big, shiny dung beetle. And first of all, I'm not sure they're meant to be out on Christmas Day. This is probably a bit of a sign of, of climate chaos and catastrophe. But even so, dung beetles are here. They're so, this is so exciting. And then a lot of the narrative around, particularly with horses, around you have to remove every single article of feces and put it somewhere safe, just begins to be different and yes if you're keeping your ponies on six square meters of land you probably do because otherwise the dung beetle is going to be a bit overwhelmed but we've got 28 acres and two ponies it's okay so are you seeing with your farmers that level of excitement and the it doesn't matter if we're only getting however many liters from our cows because we're changing our business model and maybe selling directly or doing something to create more value from our milk than we will get from a supermarket which is going to pay us less than the cost of production. Because that seems to me what you were saying about don't go cold turkey. It matters that you we still live within a predatory capital system. We still need money to survive. And we can't get to the point where we have amazing land and no income or we won't have the land anymore. Somebody will buy it and turn it into a mega farm. How are your farmers... Adjusting to changed priorities, what are they doing so that they can prioritise dung beetles and worms and swallows? I think that's where the difference in thinking comes in, doesn't it? And there's going to be people on both sides of the coin, <laughs> uh, very much so. And and hopefully more people going to, more towards that way of thinking, I think, or I, I hope, yeah, I hope, I hope so. I think it's always, it's always a there's a toss-up, isn't there? So you're never going to be able to get 70 litres of milk out of a cow a day if you just feed it on grass. That's not going to happen. So that's your mindset shift, I think, right there. But you might get 15 litres to 20 litres out of a cow a day with a lot less input. And that comes back to that profit yield thing, doesn't it? So if, you, if you're if focusing right. on, yes. the, on the profit over the yield, then in effect, I think that's when you can start really seeing changes but those systems are going to be lower output you know the lower the input the lower the output no matter no matter what way you look at it really and I think some people are happy with that and that's really that's a really nice thing that they are you know they're happy with that it's not easy to farm I don't think whichever way you look at it but I think it's more maybe satisfying way of life <laughs> it's more spiritually engaged yes, I think. yeah exactly it's yeah. kind of hard to be spiritually engaged with your you know, 70 litres a day cow that is basically a living machine. Yeah. And and it's and you're going to break it and throw it away quite fast because no cow can produce 70 litres a day for very long. Whereas certainly in the Pasture for Life groups that I'm in, they, they're looking at breeds that don't produce that much, that are able to live on the land 100% and just eat grass and, because that's what cows are for. And I, you know, everyone's talking about how can we change our power use from 19 rolling terawatts around the planet to five, which is what all the smart people say is where we need to. And we have these amazing little solar arrays called grass leaves that the cows can just graze on. And then we don't need to have all of the high carbon input stuff to keep them going. But we do have to get our heads around. I listened to a fantastic podcast with Finlow Kostein with someone in Germany 
And they were getting 3,000 litres a year from their cows. And they were really happy because they had almost no inputs at all. And the cows were happy and, and you know, they had good feet and they weren't needing antibiotics because they weren't stressed all of the time. And they told the guy who taught agriculture, the local university, wherever in Germany, and, and he laughed and said, well, that's not an output. That's, that's not production. You know, we're not even interested in talking about that because it's not anywhere close to what we consider to be financially viable. And so I'm wondering where you find the nexuses of conversation, because there are going to be people where that is their worldview. And it's unless they have a light bulb moment or they walk into a room and it says the answer is in the soil, they're not going to change because all of their worldview and their emotional alignment is in the high productivity, linear, reductive mindset. And a lot of farmers went through farming college and all of their companions are like that. And it must be really hard to begin to step against the tide. What is it that helps people to change? What is the light bulb moment that gets people to begin to think outside the box? I think that's other people. I think that's for other farmers. And I think that's what we always see, isn't it, is you have those farmers that take the first steps. And they start to see the benefit. Mm. And that will be the same for anything. You have the change makers to start with. And then you hope that 80% of people will follow them. Right. Yes. <laughs> or that they will at least make some changes. Or even just starts, just puts a question in their mind. I think that's the important thing. I think that's probably what happened for me. There was a niggling question about farming overall, which just, yeah. And, I, and at first I was very defensive of it. I think that's the other thing. I think you go through those stages, don't you, where you are. I was like, no, this can't possibly be right. This is, you know, this is great and it's everything. And then, and then, but if you have an open mind to all of the possibilities, even if you're not there yet, you will get there. And there's lots of reasons, isn't there, why people don't change or why people do. And it's very different, but I, you, I hope it would start slowly and you get the, like the groundswell of movement towards it. But I do think it's other people. I think it's just, and it's other people in an open mind. Yeah. And having people like you going, there are there are answers and we can help you on the way so that everybody's not having to redesign their own wheel from scratch. So again, you, you're there yeah. leading. Are you finding other vets are referring farmers to you? you know, these guys are asking questions and I know you have the answers and I haven't got them yet. Please, will you take them on? Is that is that a thing? I would say I have more and more conversations with vets. Um, I've also been, there's two things going on at the moment. So I, I recently did some training for vet practices in the South. So we had like seven different vet practices turn up um, and talk to them. So they came as sort of CPD, which, yeah, I got massive imposter syndrome. Um, <laughs> but I bet they loved it. And those conversations, I think, are really important throughout the vet world and beyond. And yeah, talking to farmers is great, isn't it? But we need to get the vets on board with this as well. And I think for me, there's more and more conversation around it. Um, whether I get referred directly from vets or not, um, I definitely get phone calls from them about it. And I think that's a good thing. And right. I did hear the other day, right. I forget which university it was. I want to say it was Surrey, but I believe they had a day at university where they learned all about dung beetles. Now, for me, that's amazing. Like, that's where it needs to start in vet schools. It certainly didn't yes. start there for me. So if that's happening, amazing. Like, that should happen everywhere. Like, we should yes. learn more about the natural, yeah, sort of na biodiversity for animal health, really. There's all of those benefits, but a lot of it has been around sales. And, and, and the vet practice model is still based around sales, unfortunately. Mm. Whichever way I think you want to look at it, it's sales of product. And a lot of that product will provide other things, you know, some of the diagnostics and that kind of thing. But... 
yeah, it's one of those slightly weird jobs, isn't it? It's not like the NHS because you have to pay for that service, but then that service is provided by, yeah, you have to, but generally by sales. So how do we change? The whole model almost needs looking at, and that's what I'm trying to do here, but I'm selling time. And a lot of people would see um, vets as a cost in terms of time. So, you know, you're someone that comes on the farm with a problem. So how can we make it so it's uh, more proactive? And I think generally the veterinary profession has got better at that over the years in terms of preventative health from a small animal perspective and a large animal perspective. But yeah, I like to think it's changing for the good and doing those training sessions. I really enjoy actually. Um, And because parasitology in in university for me was quite boring. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yes. Look at this worm under the microscope and tell us what it was. Yeah. <laughs> I, th- if, if someone had said, you know, there's these dung beetles, I'd have been really interested in it. But it, um, yeah, yeah, it didn't inspire me quite so much. So hopefully I can try and inspire other people to do some. And, and the work I do, so as, as the regenerative vet, is very much about trying to work with the vets that are on the farm. So I did a consultancy visit the other day. I went up to... Um, up in the north and interestingly parasite control on a fell type situation or on a a common land is quite tricky (laughs) Uh, for lots of reasons because you need farmers to collaborate together on that right but their vet came along to the farm um as well so they could be there and listen into what i was saying and i'm really really open to that i don't want to be like well i'm the i'm the consultant and therefore i know best let's get everyone involved on that farm and knew some of the best conversations i actually have are when you're sat down around a table and there's the farmer there's the nutritionist there's the um agro the the person who's there to sell them lots of products that they want to throw in the land to get numbers that yes and i am thinking also with common land one of the core narratives of the death cult is that the tragedy of the commons is tragic that it is impossible for people to get together and and have a commonality of anything without destroying it which quite evidently isn't true. And Eleanor Ostrom demonstrated that very effectively decades ago, but it's still a narrative. If you have someone on common land, as you've just described, who wants to begin to be more regenerative, to use fewer products, which is going to piss off the agricultural consultant, presumably. But in the end, you can provide a narrative, a story about healthier animals and I'm thinking also happier farmers. And that must be a really big thing because Almost all the farmers I know are super stressed. They lie awake at night wondering how they're going to service their debt because they depend on weather and things and they exist in a mechanistic system that that doesn't allow for differences in rainfall. How does that pan out? Or have you not seen enough yet? Do, Do other farmers come and listen? Or does that one farmer then have to be an advocate for everything and go, hey guys, look, it could be much different if we all embraced a different worldview. That's a hard thing to be that trailblazer how does it go yeah yeah (laughs) that's a really tricky question and I haven't got the answer all I can say is I think so one of the conversations we had that day was how to get all the farmers together and that that might not be best coming from the farmer but actually maybe that's where the vet has a role so if the vet has a meeting around parasite control on common land actually and you can get most of the farmers or really or every single farmer that's involved in that bit of common land together to talk about those decisions we can facilitate those discussions and that's a really good first step in just getting people to start thinking about working together because like there's no it's really hard if you've got say sheep scab on a hill on a common on common land and one person treats then 
those animals will just get reinfected by another on the fell and another, you know, and it's just a constant going around. So everybody needs to work together to do things at the same time. And I think that collaboration, if it can start even from just a parasite perspective, then the vets help that happen. So for me, that's a, that's a win. <laughs> yes. So if you're holding conversations like that with big groups of farmers, have you taken training in how to facilitate non-confrontational conversation? Because that seems to me to be one of the keys to creating a regenerative future is finding different ways to talk to each other. But even that can be a hard conversation to have. Is, is it somewhere that you go or is that just too off the edge? Yeah, no, I haven't done any training. <laughs> Maybe I should, actually. Maybe that's not a bad thing to do. But I think... Um... I do also don't mind being the middle person. So I think that's a good thing. I think having that middle ground isn't a bad thing. And if I'm that person that ends up being that facilitator for whatever reason of those conversations, that's fine. Right. And I think it's years of talking to far- talking to farmers. I mean, you just get such a cross section of people in, in the farming industry. And in it, well, in, ma- in many, I mean, I've worked in bars and restaurants for years. That was an interesting one. But um, <laughs> you just, you, I think you just have to learn to, you have to learn to listen. And I think, yeah. I think, and, and that's another thing, I don't want to, again, coming back to vet school and stuff, we get these really high achievers <laughs> um, mm. that are doing exceptionally well in exams, but actually communication can fall down a little bit. So I think communication in terms of what we're looking for in our future generation of vets should be really, really high priority. Those softer skills aren't taught to us at all, are they? They're not ever really taught to us at all, whether we're at school, for farmers, for anyone else, anyone. Yeah. You know, we don't we don't get taught communication. We don't get taught how to listen. We're kind of, you know, even one of the things I really struggle with um, is I can't, the emotion, like emotions, how we're taught to deal with emotions. You know, even like like happiness is a great thing, isn't it? Because we want everyone to be happy. But then when people have grief or sadness or anger, all of those things are sort of seen as bad emotions and we shouldn't talk about them and we shouldn't definitely don't be sad because that's a terrible thing mm. but actually all people have all of these all they are is emotions they're not you know happiness is still an emotion it comes and it goes sadness is emotion it comes and it goes and we just we're not taught how to deal with them so yeah so maybe if we can introduce communication better <laughs> in vet schools yeah. or in yeah. schools in general we might uh, we might get somewhere <laughs> and possibly select differently because Certainly in my day, the competition to get into vet school was higher than getting into medicine. It was the highest of any competition anywhere. And so you self-select for the people who are very good at passing exams. And those of us who are very good at passing exams tend to be quite far along the spectrum away from the capacity to communicate. It took me took me decades to learn how to talk to anybody. And I had to want to do that. And so... Yeah, selecting for people who are going to be capable of conversation or helping them to find the ways to be capable of conversation seems to be quite key. And then exactly as you're saying, it seems to me that those of us who are interested in in a regenerative future go through a pretty classic and predictable set of emotional curves where we start off with curiosity and possibly quite a lot of denial and then we slam into a brick wall of grief because we are part of a system that is destroying the things that we love and everyone is going to hit that and finding ways to help people navigate that and come out the other side to a place where we understand that we still have agency that humanity as a keystone species is still a possibility, a positive keystone species is still a possibility and there are routes to get there. And you mentioned biomimicry and and even 
understanding that the web of life could be a model for us that we could deliberately embrace and step forward into a world where we engage differently with the natural world. It's a huge conversation to have for people. In your navigating of the conversations, what is it? Is it that? What is it that carries the leading edge farmers forward? What is it that gives them the impetus to get up in the morning and do things differently? Is it that they'll feel better? Is it that they've gone through the grief and they can see light at the end of the tunnel? Is it a fascination with dung beetles and, and understanding how they how they do their stuff? I want, to, I want you to talk a little bit more about dung beetles in a moment because they're <laughs> so exciting. Is it that sort of thing? What is it that gets them up in the morning and, and gets them stepping outside the box? I think it's different for every single person okay so whatever it is that's interested them that's caused them to come into this is going to be completely different for every single person so mine is dung beetles which is crazy in in a weird way it is those little beetles for somebody it might be i remember a conversation with an arable farmer who was spraying his fields and a hair ran under the sprayer and then it went up on the headland and he started saw it licking himself and that was his sort of moment that this didn't feel right and that was all that that took and I think for me one of the biggest things that I've realized through all of this journey is that every single farm is its unique self so whether it's your own unique ecosystem and they're all very different so everything that we ever learned about this sort of general prescription for all farms about what should go ahead just doesn't stack up anymore so you know the what I was talking about working up in that it, go, working up in um, the north the other day on that common ground is completely different to a farmer working down in the southwest on permanent pasture. Every single farm is different. Every single farmer or is different, and therefore that requires you to just take a completely different approach to your farm. And it doesn't matter what anybody else is doing, but this generalized. Well, this and, and it's the same what we you know what I was taught at vet school. It's like this, it's one size fits all and it just doesn't exist anymore. And one of the first questions I now ask farms when I go out and do my consultancy visit is what are you trying to achieve? Right. That's what I want to know. What do they right. want? What do they want from their life? What do they want from their business? What do they want for their future or for their children? All of that kind of stuff. What do they, yeah, what is that farm trying to achieve? And I, it's not necessarily a question I would ask in my day-to-day vet role. No, but it's the first question of that first module of the holistic planned grazing mm. training that you did. And for you, that was a really emotional moment. Do you find that with the farmers, asking them that takes them through a similar emotional cycle? Or are they coming to you because they've already asked themselves that and they've been through that emotional cycle? I've had both. So I've had people be a bit shocked at the question and then I've had people be like, oh, well, actually, would you want to hear our context? And it just very much depends on where they are on their journey. So I think, but yeah, my favourite ones are the ones where people go, oh, (laughs) what are we trying to achieve? Um, And then you kind of help like try and unpick that a little bit. I quite enjoy that. Yeah. 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 Because often we don't think about it, do we? What is it? What is it we're trying to achieve? And not just from a business perspective, but from everything. So I need yeah, to, as a human being, I'm going to organize if I want to talk about how we're going to do some grazing planning uh, for from a worming perspective. If somebody actually doesn't want to be working at certain hours of the day or isn't able to move their cows on one day or another, that kind of thing really helps because, you know, they're taking the kids to rugby or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. I can feel a whole rabbit hole we could go down there, but we I still want you to, because I've heard you talk about dung beetles and it's just so inspiring. And I think that's one of the things that you bring to this is you've got such 
energy around the guys, dung beetles, they're so much fun. And look, you could <laughs> you could be looking after dung beetles and not killing them. This would be a good thing. So tell us a little bit about the life cycle of a dung beetle and, and how it does what it does so that we can get everyone excited. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I love that. I could talk about them all day. So um, do feel free to just interject. <laughs> but yeah, so um, I'm, so I think the important thing is I am a vet, not an entomologist. So I'm a dung beetle enthusiast more than a dung beetle expert. <laughs> but yeah, I, um, so in the U, so in the UK, as I said earlier, didn't know we had dung beetles, but we've got about 60 species. So 60 species of which nearly half of them are endangered in one way or another. And there's various reasons for that. Um, but we've got two types of dung beetle. We have dwellers, which do exactly what they say. So they dwell in the light, in the pat and their entire life cycle is completed in that poo pat. And then we've got tunnelers. So um, tunnelers are do ex- again what they say. So they tunnel down underneath the dung. And as they tunnel down, they um, basically are mining. So they make like a central mine shaft and then they have these little side shafts that come off and they pull the poo down under the soil um, into these little side shafts, a little tiny poo ball and into each poo ball they lay an egg and then that egg reproduces in the ground and then they come up the following year and that cycle continues so yeah so we've got dwellers we don't have those big rolling beetles that they have on sort of David Attenborough movies where do where do they live are they in kind of desert areas do I remember yeah sort of South Africa Africa those big sort of African rolling dung beetles and the reason we don't have those dung beetles is we don't have the same competition for poo so basically in the UK there's so much poo everywhere that they don't need to physically come pick the poo up in a ball steal it and roll it away and steal it away from everybody else yeah (laughs) so try and hide it away so basic so yeah so it's a good thing (laughs) we've got lots of poo and our dung beetles are smaller in comparison so if we're going to talk about dung beetles i think the most important thing is that we talk about poo go for it so um poo is it gets a really bad rep um in terms of the problems that it causes and the pollution in the uk but actually it's really, really important. There's loads of things that rely on poo and there are um, so many things going on in there in a, in a single poo pat. I often describe it as a night out in Liverpool. Um, so if we think of our poo as a night out in Liverpool, you've got your sort of creepy guys hanging out on the street corners. So they will be like your parasitic worms and your flies all causing a bit of a problem, being a bit weird. And then you've got your big guys who are walking down the street and they're all up for a bit of a fight. Um, so there'll be things like your predatory beetles and your predatory spiders, and they are literally just scrapping with each other, just trying to eat everything that's in there, fighting over other bugs. Everyone's trying to eat each other. Um, and then we've got dung beetles who are literally going from bar to bar and getting drunk on liquid dung. That's what they want to do. So they're just our lovely guys having a nice time, having a nice little night out in Liverpool. And then you've got um, your things like your dung flies that are just having sex all over it. So there's basically wow. this huge night out in a city inside this single poo pat. And there was a chap in the 50s who figured out that a single cow pack could support up to a thousand developing insects. Now, if you think about that um, in terms of sort of amounts of uh, bugs, a single cow could then potentially support over two million insects per year. Right. So suddenly poo goes from being this negative thing that is just contaminating the environment to suddenly when we're talking about global biodiversity loss of 70%, this huge sort of living, breathing mass of life. And this is a, a, a dung pat that's on the land because it seems to me that a lot of the, quotes pollution partly is diverting our attention away from the fact that what we're spraying and dusting on the land is running straight off into the rivers and is actually the cause of most of the pollution. But we can say, oh no, look at these bad cows. And it's it, those are the ones that are in concrete 
and and then you've got slurry lagoons, which isn't doing any of this useful stuff, presumably. So it's when they're the cattle or the sheep or the horses or the goats or whatever, the ruminants or the animals that digest grass are on the land and dropping their dung and their urine on the land. And I've also noticed here that the crows turn up a lot. Presumably the crows are turning up because they're feasting off the amazing amount of life that the the dung pat is creating. And then the swallows are scooping across the top and then the bats come out in the in, in the evening and they're scooping across as well. So we're creating a whole hierarchies of, of amazing and brilliant biodiversity. Yay! So we have our tunnelers and our dwellers. What do the... And, what do the dwellers do? They just sit, stay in the same pat or do they are they actually moving from pat to pat and, and kind of tracking things with them? Yeah, they do move from pat to pat. Yeah, they do. And it's interesting. So what you said about um, the poo on concrete is an interesting one. So the best way, if you want to think dung beetles, you need to think like you are a dung beetle. So currently, Amanda, you are now a dung beetle and how you evolved as well. So um, so if you think about it from that perspective, you're a dung beetle, you didn't evolve with concrete. Sure so therefore you don't know what to do with it. So dung beetles evolved with pats on pasture. So they only, and so, dung, so some of these tunneling dung beetles can um, move up to 500 times their own body weight. That is incredible. That's like us moving six buses full of people. Like, like it just wouldn't happen. Wow. So they can move that in terms of, and they're called, I mean, geotrupid, which is one of their main names, those big black beetles that you found in your horse poo. That means earth mover, which is really cool. Yes. So they tunnel down, but they cannot tunnel through concrete. They don't know what to do with it. Right. And dung beetles have this amazing quality of actually being able to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So one of the things they're talking about at the moment is, I mean, methane emit, me, reducing methane in livestock, I mean, by by giving them supplements in their diet i mean the whole thing just makes me a little bit crazy why don't we just improve work on improving the number of dung beetles who can reduce climate uh, greenhouse gas emissions up to 12 percent how do they do that so you know they so dung beetles have this huge role to play in reducing greenhouse gas emissions and yet we're talking about then feeding stuff to cows which might change how their dung looks to a dung beetle the whole thing just blows my mind a little bit so so again how they evolve they also evolve with cows that ate grass so they didn't evolve you know, we decided to feed animals corn. They wouldn't have grown maize because they don't have thumbs. So they would have eaten pasture. So therefore, a dung beetle will want to eat a pasture, will potentially prefer pasture-fed livestock. They don't know what to do with high-grain diets. They don't know what to do with very liquid poo. So you said slurry. They don't know what to do with slurry. They need those pats. They're also a prey species. So they want to be those big folds that you get in your horse poos. They like to dig into those and hide. They're a bit like the ruminant of the poo world, if you like. So they want to hide in those big deep pads. They don't know what to do with slurry. They don't know what to do with very liquid poo. And, you know, we, we put dairy cows out in the springtime and, you know, I go and PD them and I get covered, pregnancy diagnosed, sorry, get covered in green poo. And we say it's normal. But what, how is it normal that that happens? Yeah. We we accept it as being normal. But when it takes a ruminant three weeks to change onto a different diet, if that was happening naturally with according to the grass growth curve, we wouldn't see that. But what we do see is this sudden change from a grain diet onto a grass diet in the spring and the, the consequences of that. So when you're talking about your gut biome again, it's probably not great for it, I would say. It's probably also a monoculture ryegrass diet, which is not going to be that good anyway. I'm sure the, the dung beetle actually wants lots of diverse species in coming through in the dung because it must have its own gut biome that needs diversity as much as anything else needs diversity. 
Exactly. Again, how did they evolve? So they would have evolved eating, I mean, we talk about these improved pastures of ryegrass, don't we? I don't really know the benefit. It's like giving cows sweets to me. Yes. You just give them a load of sugary sweets all the time. You give them one, they don't have any choice in what they eat. Therefore, you get this rapid transit through the gut, you increase their metabolism, you increase their milk yields, you increase, you know, all of those things do happen. But actually, what's the benefit to the longevity of that cow? What's the benefit to the beetles that are surviving on that? And I mean, a completely very small scale test that I did I have a, the group, a group of dry cows moving through a dairy farm um, same group of dairy cows moving through the same farm one bit of that farm is meadow beautiful meadow I have 20 odd or so species in that in that meadow you won't find tunneling dung beetles on any of that other ryegrass clover pasture the only place you see the tunneling dung beetles and hundreds of them is in that meadow land so it's not just it's the same group of cows right it's the same in theory dung but is it something is it something about the diet that's changed for the cows when they go into that meadow or is it something about that actual soil structure that they like more i don't know the answer but i know that i see more in there and that's telling me something and probably the the monoculture pasture has been ploughed and seeded and the meadow hasn't because you can't have that level of diversity you destroyed the the soil microbiome and the the mycology and i'm wondering it would be really interesting if not when they're dry cows but my understanding is that cattle fed on monoculture grasses and cereals the omega-6 omega-3 ratio in the milk is the wrong way round for humanity so it's not only bad for the dung beetles and bad for the soil and bad for the cattle. It's bad for the people who are drinking the milk or the milk products or, or eating the meat or any of the other things that we've got these cattle for in the first place. And that's the kind of thing that isn't getting any media exposure at all. If you read or listen to some of the what's now commonplace but used to be considered hard right visions of the world they want to rewild everything that they don't necessarily have to see and then they want farming to be industrial monocultures where everything is exactly the same and everything is massively over pharmaceuticalized what we would i would consider to be over pharmaceuticalized and it's this extraordinary reductive view of the world that doesn't actually match anything that we understand now about how complex systems really work We'll go back to dung beetles in a minute, but I'm curious to know whether you're getting any interest from what we would consider to be the mainstream media in the story of dung beetles can help to sequester carbon, but we need to be on diverse pasture. We need to be more pasture-fed livestock. We need to have animals that have lower productivity because high productivity is not necessarily the only measure. Is anybody coming to ask you about that? Um, not really, I would say. <laughs> Damn. We need to make that happen. I think there's more generally in the media, isn't there, about more about regenerative farming, which I think is a really good thing. So yeah, so I think and and it doesn't. I don't. I don't know if it matters who they speak to, as long as they speak to somebody who's really passionate about what they're doing. For me, that's really important. I, I don't understand why it's not why it's not more main why it's not more mainstream, but I do feel like it is gathering momentum, and I hope it's going in the right direction. Yeah. Okay. And but also, I'm aware that you and I were both at a conference where there were two different. Gen- definitions of regenerative farming. There was something that's not quite industrial farming because we don't plough as much, but we still spray quite a lot of glyphosate all over the place. And that's somehow regenerative. And then there's the people for whom you get industrial farming and better than that is organic farming and much better than either of those is regenerative farming because we're pasture fed and trying to increase the microbiome. And the fact that the same word can have radically different meanings is going to confuse things. And I'm not sure that's accidental. 
We're nearly out of time, but I want to go back to the dung beetles. How do they reduce greenhouse gas emissions from cattle? Because that is becoming quite a trigger thing and, and it's part of the agenda of we need not to be having livestock on the land anymore, which is let's forget the fact that fracking reduces produces massive amounts of, of methane and pours it straight up into the sky. And let's look at cows instead because cows work methane and that's bad which is functionally insane. And all of the numbers have been done on the assumption that every cow in the world is in a, a US concrete feedlot being fed grain and, and has a lifespan of about two and a half years and then dies. And it's all completely crackers. But if we want to change the narrative, we need to do it in a positive way. How do dung beetles reduce methane emissions in cows? So I should say, so this is work done by Ellie Slade, uh, so Dr. Ellie Slade, um, and she uh, looked at reducing greenhouse gas emissions on pasture. So it's not, so it's from feces rather than most of the methane emissions from cows. Well, obviously belching is what we worry about more generally from a methane perspective. But then again, we're only thinking about a methane perspective and not about the huge other benefits of dung beetles. So obviously one of those is reducing the greenhouse gas emissions. So actually dung removal, like we said, they're getting that dung off the pasture. They either drink it, they eat it, right. they poop it out again. Anything that's pooped out by something once becomes better for the environment at the following end, as far as I'm aware. So it gets pooped out by a cow, it then gets re-pooped out by a dung beetle. Right. And suddenly it's much more usable nutrients and obviously tunneling it so taking that muck under the ground away reducing that runoff to rivers as well so nitrous oxide as well so you know we know about you know nitrogen buildup in rivers right. and the problems that that causes yes. eutrophication and all of those things but also they do so much more than that so there's the greenhouse gas emissions which is one thing then there's the fact that you know they carry one of the, one of my most favorite things about a dung weasel is that they carry these tiny little mites on them they're called phoretic mites. And basically, the phoretic mites don't fly, but they carry, the, the dung beetle carries them from pat to pat. So they crawl onto the dung beetle. And then when the dung beetle flies around going to different pats, these little mites drop off into the dung pat. And these guys like eat nuisance fly larvae. So they eat the, lar the fly larvae that then bothers the cows. Wow. <laughs> like that's incredible. They also carry fungi, I believe, on them. So, you know, there's 300 types of poo-loving fungus in the UK. Who even knew wow. that was a thing? I mean, all of these... So there's those benefits, yeah, that aren't just direct, but then also they're a massive prey species. So you talked about seeing more bats before. There's certain types of, um, you find more greater horseshoe bats where there are livestock within four kilometers of their roosting sites. And the reason for that is there's certain types of dung beetle that fly at dusk that are really, really important for feeding their young. Wow. So actually there's all of these all of these other impacts. And you were saying about crows before, there was a study done on uh, the Isle of Isla up in Scotland where the they had a massive decline in red-billed chuff population. So red-billed chuffs are a bit like crows, but with red beaks. And they couldn't really figure out why all these crows, why all these chuffs were dying. And basically, it was routine treatment of livestock using triclobendazole, which is a flucoside, and synthetic pyrethroids, which are our fly products. And because they were just consistently using them, the poos were dead because the, anything that then came out the back end of the animal is affected by these products that we give to them. They're covered in that stuff, in the chemical. And then when the chuffs were going through the poo piles, there was nothing in them for them to eat. That's what they do. So your crows go through them looking for bugs. I mean, a lot of them will eat dung beetles, sadly, but they will eat other 
other things in that poo pile. And if we use these treatments willy-nilly on our animals without needing them, we effectively render those poos dead. So they don't get broken down as quickly. We end up with dirtier pastures as a result because that poo just sits there because nothing actually wants to eat it. They reduce the breakdown by earthworms because we find more earthworms in pats or under pats where dung beetles are in. I don't even know how that happens. It's incredible, all of these things we don't fully understand. But all of those breakdown processes and those decomposition processes are affected by a decision made at the other end of the animal to use a fly product to maybe control some flies around a cow that may not cause an awful lot of problems but we become so obsessed by the fact we don't want a single fly around them that yeah i i, I, I the mind boggles again <laughs> have they reversed it has isla stopped using the the antimentics and the pyrethroids and have they got the chefs back yeah, the chuffs are back. That was, so it basically proves a point, you know. And we, you know, you, there's so many examples of this throughout the world. I think was it diclofenac in the use of diclofenac in livestock in India caused massive population yes. decline. We lost there was 99 percent of the population of vultures basically disappeared because the diclofenac, which is a pain relief in uh, they were using in livestock, the vultures then ate the dead livestock. Then the diclofenac caused massive kidney failure in the vultures. And then there's suddenly no vultures, again, another keystone species, even though they get a bad reputation vultures. But yet what they were doing in terms of clearing up dead animals, suddenly there's increased portion, proportion of feral dogs, increased rabies and in humans, and suddenly this whole problem. So every single time one of those animals, and again, you can, you can talk about it with dung beetles. You know, dung beetles in Australia, we took, we took livestock to Australia and then there was a massive issue because basically there was no dung beetles for ruminant livestock because they only ever had marsupials. Oh, and the fly populations in right. Australia got so bad that it actually affected the economy because people literally couldn't be outside in the middle of the day because the flies were so bad. So they've had to then suddenly import dung beetles into Australia. So all of the ruminant dung beetles in Australia, in Australia are now imported into the country because literally the, wow. the, the country fell apart without dung there were none. That's so interesting. And then you wonder, you know, because we're very good at, at making obvious linear connections and what happens when we bring foreign dung beetles in that we have yeah, no idea exactly. what that will do long term. You know, complex systems are complex, but I suppose you had to do something. And having introduced the ruminant dung beetles are the flies less now is it working yeah i believe so and and the thing is nobody ever thought you wouldn't ever think that would you well we're going to just take these animals from this one place to another and that should be fine but actually if all of the systems aren't in place like you said and you take one thing and you change or you change one thing without thinking about the entire system you can end up in a bit of a tricky situation but yeah no the dung beetles are surviving well as far as i believe but yeah what's the long-term effects of taking those animals over to australia massive yeah, but then we took people of a different kind to Australia and we destroyed an existing we did. perfectly functional ecosystem with perfectly functional people in it. So, yeah. Okay, I've kept you way too long. <laughs> this has just been so exciting. Thank you. Really, really, really interesting. Is there anything that you would like to say to people listening around the world about dung beetles or regenerative farming or holistic planning or anything as a closing thing? Please just do some faecal egg counting before you worm your animals. <laughs> That would be my right. number one. Yes. <laughs> and your number two, because we talked before we started and I haven't ever got to it. Your Instagram. Tell us tell us just a tiny bit before we finish about the farm. Oh yes, I love that you called it my number two after what we've just been discussing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, that hadn't occurred to me, but there we go. What makes me excited at the moment? Um I yeah, I went up um 
it's again it sounds like an idealistic dream but I'm nothing if not idealistic um I went off to see a farm which isn't too far from where I live about a mile away up the road the other day and I knew I couldn't afford it and um I knew um I would also fall in love with it because I run up there actually quite a lot I run up past through the footpaths and up past the side of the farm uh, and I went to look at it and yes I fell wow. in love and it's completely and utterly out of my price range it's somewhere in the region of about two million pounds and it'll probably need next million to actually get it going um so I put a post about it because interesting for me was that when I asked about interest a lot of it's come from forestry um, and a lot of the farms around here and again up in Scotland as well have just been bought out by forestry and then plants trees have been planted on that land usually the wrong trees in the wrong place lot yes. completely devoid of yes. light completely devoid of life and those farms are gone and they're not going to go back into production as farms again so I put it out there because I just I feel like people aren't necessarily so aware of it and um yeah, I had some really good feedback and someone suggested I should crowdfund for it. And now I cannot stop thinking about it. And I don't know if I would ever manage to crowdfund enough, two million to three million pounds to buy a farm. But if you don't know, you don't try. And somebody said you miss 100% of the shots that you don't take. So you never know, Manda. <laughs> Next time I speak to you. <laughs> Go for it. You might be a farmer I might be somewhere a farmer. not too far from here. That would be so exciting. Which would be ideal because my plan as the regenerative vet is actually to do myself out of a job because I feel that healthy animals shouldn't right. really need me. So I'm going to have to farm one day. <laughs> yes. Well, if you get your crowdfunder set up, you send me the link and I will put it in the show notes to this podcast because people listen long, long, long after the recording date or even the first transmission date. So Thank you. if you get it, people, anyone <laughs> listening so far, I want you to go to the show notes and have a look and see if there's a link to crowdfunding for Claire's Farm. And if there is, just give it a little bit. Yeah, every little bit just helps. A pound. You're absolutely right. If you don't try, you don't know. Yeah. Yeah, all you need is three million people giving you a pound each. There you go, done. Done, (laughs) sorted. Yay. Thank you so much. This has been so exciting and I really look forward to following the progress of the regenerative vet. I'm deeply envious that such a thing exists now and it's so long after I've abandoned veterinary practice and I'm not going to set up in any kind of competition, but I'm so glad that you're doing this and that people are listening. You're out there doing CPD for other vets because that's how we're going to spread the word. It's great. So I hope you get your farm. I hope you do yourself out of business, but I still think there's going to be lots of room for people doing consultancy on holistic planning. And you are that too. So it's grand. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) And that's it for this week. An enormous thanks to Claire for all that she is and does, for her extraordinary enthusiasm and the depth of her knowledge and her capacity to spread ideas in the places that need them most. If you get a chance to go on one of her dung beetle safaris, absolutely, you should take it. You will learn more than you possibly knew you could learn about dung beetles and dung and all the things that a keystone species does when it thrives. And if you have the capacity to organise meetings of farmers or smallholders or vets or horse people, because horse wormers kill dung beetles just as efficiently as any other wormers, Then get some together and invite Claire to come and speak to you. She is genuinely one of the most engaging and intriguing speakers I've ever had the pleasure to listen to. So go for it. And if you can't do any of that, then as we've said so often on this podcast, find out who's growing food locally to you in a way that is genuinely regenerative. Not ploughing, not spraying, 
not fertilizing in any way, no inputs, just livestock recycling the value in the land. Find these people and support them. Buy your food there. It will have higher nutrient density in the right proportions that you need and you will be supporting your local community. So go for it. And when Claire has her crowdfunder up, I guarantee I will put a link in the show notes. So keep checking back and when it's there, even a pound will help someone who genuinely gets the land to be out there doing good things. It has to be better than the forestry, planting serried rows of monoculture Sitka spruce that releases more carbon in the ploughing of the land than it will ever sequester and completely destroys the biodiversity of the soil and the surrounding areas. So go for that, too. And that apart, we will be back next week with another conversation. In the meantime, enormous thanks to Karasi for the music at the head and foot, to Alan Lowell's of Airtight Studios for the production, to Anne Thomas for the transcripts, to Faith Tillery for all of the conversations that keep us moving forward, and for keeping the tech intact. And then, as ever, an enormous thanks to you for listening. If you have time, five stars and a review on the podcast provider of your choice does, apparently, make an enormous difference to our capacity to be found by other people. I still think word of mouth is the way we spread, but stars and reviews also helps. But if you do know of anybody else who wants to understand the nature of keystone species, who wants to get to know more about dung and soil and dung beetles and the whole nature of regenerative farming, then please do send them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you and goodbye.